Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, August the 5th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, once again, uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in this episode, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the current situation in the West Africa, in West Africa, where the regional economic community of West African states is threatening the military government in neighboring Niger. An African-American professor has settled a lawsuit against Texas A&M University for discrimination. The city of St. Louis has agreed to damages to protesters arrested some two years ago. And uh, the doctors uh, in Nigeria are continuing their strike over the deteriorating economic conditions inside of Africa's most populous state. In the second hour, we look closer at the situation in Niger and the rising anti-imperialist sentiment in West Africa. Finally, uh, we begin our month-long commemoration of Black August with a rare archival interview uh, with Pan-African historian and Marxist theoretician C.L.R. James. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in uh, the United Republic of Tanzania. And, of course, this is uh, from uh, the album entitled Zanzibar Hot and Dark.
kufanye kila njia Kwani kuna matatizo, matatizo, matatizo kwetu Yeah. 
pesa sina na marafiki zangu sijaona hata mmoja nyumbani kwangu aje kunitembelea sijui tutafanyaje eh basi mwana kasimu ndio mkubwa huo na kweli kasimu wewe eh hebu pale shilingi moja hapo basi nakwambia nimewaka ile nguvu
Ah uh-huh. 
Welcome back. And that was uh, music from Zanzibar in the United Republic of Tanzania uh, from the album entitled Hot in Dark. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, August the 5th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to uh, go into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Nigeria's new military uh, government has asked for help from uh, the Russian military services company, Wagner. As the deadline nears for it to be released, the country's ousted president uh, or uh, face possible military intervention by the West African regional bloc. Now, the request came during a visit by the uh, leader, one of the leaders of the coup, General Salafu Modi, uh, to neighboring Mali, uh, where he made contact with someone from Wagner, uh, Wasim Nasir, a journalist and senior research fellow at the Sufan Center, uh, told the international press. He said three Malian sources and a French diplomat confirmed the meeting first reported by France 24. Uh, They need Wagner because they will become their guarantee to hold on to power, he said. Adding that the group is considering the request, a Western military official speaking on conditions of anonymity because they were not authorized to comment, told uh, the press that they have also heard reports that the junta asked for help from Wagner in Mali. Niger's military government uh, faces a deadline for tomorrow. Uh, That deadline was set arbitrarily uh, by the regional bloc known as the Economic Community of West African States to release and reinstate the democratically elected President Mohamed Bazoum, who has described himself as a hostage. Now, defense leaders uh, from ECOWAS member states finalized an intervention plan on yesterday and urged militaries to prepare resources at a mediation team sent to Niger on Thursday wasn't allowed to enter the capital or meet with junta leader General Abdurrahmani Chani. On Saturday, Nigeria's Senate advised the nation's president, the current ECOWAS chair, to further explore options other than the use of force to restore democracy in Niger, noting the existing cordial relationship between Nigerians and Nigerians. The legislature had deliberated on the president's request informing them of ECOWAS's decision and Nigeria's involvement as required uh, by law. Final decisions by ECOWAS, however, are taken by a consensus among its member countries. After his visit to Mali, uh, run by a sympathetic uh, military government, uh, Modi warned against a military intervention, vowing that Niger would do what it takes not to become a new Libya. Niger State Television reported on Friday, Niger has been seen as the West's last reliable so-called counter-terrorism partner in a region where coups have been common in recent years. Military governments have rejected the former colonizer of France and turned towards the Russian Federation. Wagner operates in a handful of African countries, including Mali, where human rights groups have accused its forces of deadly abuses. It isn't possible to say Russia is directly involved in the coup, But, quote, clearly, there is an opportunistic attitude on the part of Russia which tries to support destabilization efforts wherever it finds them, unquote. And that's according to the French Foreign Affairs Ministry spokeswoman, 
on Claire Ladron. And uh, she told this to the broadcast of BFM yesterday. For days after Niger's junta seized power, residents waved Russian flags in the streets. And in other news uh, on the situation in Niger, regional mediation efforts to reverse the coup in Niger and restore its president collapsed as soon as they started. Tensions have escalated as the Sunday deadline nears for possible military intervention by other West African countries. On Friday, the region's defense chiefs finalized a plan to use force against the Niger junta, needing approval uh, by their political leaders. If Mohamed Bazoum is not reinstated as Niger's president, the delegation of the bloc known as ECOWAS had gone to Niger but could not meet with the coup leader, General Abdurrahman Jihani, who later declared that any aggression against Niger would see an immediate response and without warning. What started as an overthrow of the president by his closest commanders in the presidential guard has received the support of some other soldiers, including the Nigerian Army Command. And um, if you want to read more on the situation in this year, all you have to do is log on to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, Texas A&M University reached a $1 million settlement just two days ago with a black journalism professor whose hiring was sabotaged by backlash over her past work promoting diversity. The nation's largest public school agreed to pay Kathleen McElroy and apologized to her while admitting, quote, mistakes were made during the hiring process, unquote. Texas A&M, which is located in College Station, about 90 miles, 144 kilometers northwest of Houston, initially welcomed McElroy with great fanfare to revive its journalism department in June. A former New York Times editor and Texas A&M alum, McElroy had overseen the journalism school at A&M's rival, the more liberal University of Texas at Austin. But McElroy uh, told the Texas Tribune last month that soon after her hiring, she learned of emerging internal pushback on unidentified individuals over her past work to improve diversity and inclusion in newsrooms. According to investigation documents released Thursday, uh, those individuals included at least six boards of Regents members who began asking questions and raising concerns about McElroy's hiring after Texas scorecard, a right-wing website, highlighted her past diversity, equity, and inclusion work. The website's article generated numerous calls and emails to the president's office of Texas A&M uh, from current and former students raising questions about why a DEI proponent uh, would be hired uh, to serve as director of the new journalism program, a summary of the school's investigation said. Shortly afterward, the university president, Catherine Banks, and a school dean began discussing changes and reductions in the job offer to McElroy. McElroy told the Tribune that the initial offer of a tenure-track position was reduced to a five-year post and then reduced again to a one-year position from which she could be fired at any time. She ultimately rejected the offer and withdrew her resignation from the University of Texas at Austin as a journalism professor. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In St. Louis, some of the people who were arrested during a 2017 protest 
over the acquittal of a white police officer in the shooting death of Anthony Lamar Smith have started receiving their share of a $4.9 million settlement the city agreed to this year. The first checks were distributed uh, yesterday to some of the 84 people covered by the settlement. Their lawsuit had claimed the protesters' rights were violated when they were caught in a police kettle as officers surrounded and arrested everyone in the area. Three people who filed individual lawsuits also settled for $85,000 each. The city denied wrongdoing as part of the settlement, which promises payouts between $28,000 and more than $150,000. Dakita Roberts told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that she initially thought it might be a scam when she first got the call about the settlement. It was just a shock and a surprise, said Roberts, and that she wants to invest some of the money and try to set some sum aside for her children. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to the situation in the Federal Republic of Nigeria, striking uh, medical doctors uh, earlier today said they will embark on a nationwide protest accusing the country's newly elected president of ignoring their demands for better pay, better work conditions, and pay of old earnings. The protest, which is scheduled to start this coming Wednesday, adds to other challenges confronting Nigeria's President Bola Tinubu, who is leading efforts by the West African Regional Bloc of ECOWAS, which he chairs to restore democracy in Niger after last week's coup d'etat. The protest became necessary to, quote, press home our demands, which have been largely neglected by our parent ministry and the federal government, unquote, said Dr. Innocence. Orji, a president of the Nigerian Association of Resident Doctors, wrote in a August 5th letter to the country's Ministry of Health, a copy of which was made available to uh, the international press. The resident doctors are graduate trainees providing critical care at uh, public hospitals across Nigeria, which has one of the world's lowest doctor-to-patient ratios, with two physicians per 10,000 residents according to the Nigerian Medical Association. The resident doctors have been on strike since July 26 to protest unpaid salaries and demand improvements in pay and working conditions. But instead of meeting their demands, the nation's Ministry of Health directed a no-work, no-pay policy against them along with other punitive measures. That's according to uh, Orji. In their letter to the health ministry, the doctors said they would also picket government offices and other institutions until their demands are met. Quote, we are pained that instead of making genuine and concerted efforts to resolve the challenges that led to the strike despite repeated ultimatums, our parent ministry and the federal government have chosen to demonize Nigerian resident doctors instead after all their sacrifices and patriotism, unquote, the letter stated. The planned protest follows a similar demonstration earlier this week by Nigerian trade unions protesting the soaring cost of living in Africa's most populous country. Some of the policies introduced by Tinubu since he took office in May have further squeezed millions in Nigeria who were already battling surging inflation, which stood at 22.7% in June and 63% rate of multidimensional poverty. This country is sitting on a keg of gunpowder, and focusing on local issues will be better for him. Dr. Irondu Nnamdi Christian, a resident doctor in southeastern Abia State, set up Tanibu's efforts in Niger. Charity begins at home. With that, we're going to conclude 
the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, August 5th, uh, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's the Pan-African Radio Network. You can find the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back. That was uh, the Iceman, Jerry Butler, uh, with uh, that hit song, uh, Western Union Man. And uh, over the last uh, two weeks, uh, the situation in the West African state of Niger has gained uh, worldwide attention uh, with the threat of a military intervention at the aegis of France and the United States, uh, which would be carried out by soldiers from the economic community of West African states, has generated widespread opposition uh, throughout the entire West Africa region and indeed uh, internationally. Uh, This is a a statement uh, that was put out by a political party in Gambia, which is uh, also in West Africa, from the Gambia Democratic Congress. Let's listen in. As an African, a Pan-Africanist, I am very concerned about the happenings in Africa, especially West Africa. Yagot, of recent I have seen the ECOWAS introducing the anti-Kudeta unit. Nunepur Kudeta had a power stop. Kukodef, they will form a big unit. Nunepur Atagla. We are not in support of Kudeta. Let me make that very clear. And I want them to hear this. We are not support or in support of coup d'etat. I was a member of the Pan-African Parliament and have advocated strongly for us to introduce a term limit to make sure that we do away with coup d'etat in Africa, especially in West Africa. Yeah, yeah. So meaning, I am not in support of coup d'etat. But I have a concern. Before setting up a unit or anti-Kudeta unit in ECOWAS, isn't it time that the African head of state or the ECOWAS head of state look into the reason why there are Kudetas? What are the root causes of Kudetas? Let them put their house in order first before they set up an anti-Kudetan unit. Let them put their house in order. And I believe their house is not in order. This unit is set up to defend them and to protect them only, nobody else. What is more coup d'etat than your national constitution gives you two term limits, five years, two terms. After serving ten years, you want to change the constitution for another term. Is that not a coup d'etat? Because you feel you have the powers to do that. The soldiers have the powers to coup d'etat. That is also another coup d'etat. And they are living with them there. They are there. 
in the name of civilly and putting on multi clothes, calling yourself a democrat when you loot all the resources of your country, mislead people, torture them, imprison them, burn their businesses to us, and you call that a democrat or a civilian rule, an illegally elected government. The leaders must stop lying to their electorate first. They must stop the corruption. They must stop looting our resources. They must understand that they are not a better citizen than anybody. They are given a responsibility, a role to play, to help develop the countries and make sure that there is peace and tranquility and respect the constitution of the country. But this is not happening. Example is this government. This government has lied to people in 2016 that they are going only for three years. Was that not a lie? Who asked them to tell people that we are going for three years? Were they forced to say that? They went around the whole country, lied to everyone. When the people started reminding them, this is what you promised us, they threw tear gas on them. And the president is bragging, yes, when I threw tear gas on them, they never came back. Does does that not anger the citizens? You throw tear gas on your people. Some of them are wounded and you stand out there and bragging that I throw them a tear gas. They never come back. That alone can anger the citizens. You promise the people you will have a security sector reform. It's never happened. The civil service sector reform is never happened. The Jane Commission, Jane Commission was violated before the end of the Vice Commission. When you take all the assets of the former president, and now you are busy buying assets, your days are coming. I thought they should have learned, or they could have learned from this. Unfortunately, they are not learning. So before you create a unit to go against any attempt of coup d'etat, put your house in order, stop lying to your electorate, stop lying to your citizens, stop losing the resources of your country, stop corruption in your country. And then you can talk about anti-coup d'etat. When Alpha Conde was killing his people in Guinea, <laughs> after serving 10 years, he said it was not enough. I want to serve another time. During the process, so many Guineans were killed. And I did not see any echoes going there or condemning him. You know why? Because Guinea was too big for them, or Alpha was dancing to their tune. Because I think that was why 
the small Gambia was surrounded all sides by soldiers and guns in 2016 because Gambia was small or Gambia is a small country and Jamme was not dancing to their tune. After the presidential election in Guinea, more than 300 Guineans were butchered, killed. No echo was condemning. No African Union condemning. Instead, they pick up their phones and say, Musele President, Felicitatio, congratulations. That is the fair game that is happening in Africa. They can condemn Mali. They can condemn Guinea. They are soldiers. But the one in charge who has been given a red carpet for the African Union was never condemned and he's a soldier too. He's a soldier. They can give him a red carpet for the African Union. But the other soldiers are condemned for their attempt or for their, for their act. Where is the fairness in ECOWAS or in the African Union? They are not representing us. I believe they are representing themselves. So we are calling them to remember that power belongs to the people. Alassane Ouattara knows how he came into power with Bagbo. He knows. But he finished his 10 year term, he changed the constitution for another term. They are there with him. Nobody condemns him. They are not there to condemn him because he is dancing to their tune. So I'm calling on ECOWAS to do the right thing. We young Africans, we are here watching. And we fear nothing. I don't have to be a president to be a Gambian. I don't have to be a president to contribute my quota towards national development. But I'm a proud Gambian and a proud African. And that is uh, one example of a view uh, that is uh, registering uh, throughout West Africa in regard uh, to this uh, French and U.S. backed military intervention into Niger to reinstall Mohamed uh, Bazoum, uh, who uh, has been a close ally of uh, Paris and Washington. And of course, uh, in Niger, there are substantial uh, deposits of uranium. Uh, there is uh, gold, and there are at least uh, two United States uh, drone stations and over 1,100 uh, United States troops uh, that are stationed uh, in Niger, along with at least uh, 1,800 French troops and of course, we cannot determine exactly how many Central Intelligence Agency uh, operatives and military intelligence operatives, State Department operatives are also functioning uh, in that country. Uh, for them to be standing up uh, to that type of international pressure is indeed historic. And uh, let's listen to another uh, discussion, uh, this time over Nigerian television. Um, on the whole question of ECOWAS and the intervention in Niger. All right. Defense chiefs of the economic community of West African states have met in Abuja in a race against time following the ultimatum from the junta in Niger 
to restore power to the democratically elected government or risk the use of force. Defense chiefs from Mali and Burkina Faso were absent, as well as those from Niger Republic and Guinea-Bissau and Guinea uh, were also absent. Uh, Mali, Burkina Faso and Guinea declared support for the junta in Niger and threatened that any application of force would amount to a declaration of war. That's the report. Let's play that report and we get along. The junta in Niger has less than five days to restore power to the democratically elected government or risk the use of international force, according to ECOWAS. The military-led government of Mali and Burkina Faso have warned against the use of force while Guinea is also supporting the junta. France, Italy and Spain had all announced evacuations from Niger for their citizens and other European nationals. In Abuja, Nigeria's chief of defense staff presided over a meeting of ECOWAS defense chiefs on Wednesday. The political instability in Niger is a source of grave concern for us all. It threatens our shared vision of a peaceful, secure and prosperous West Africa. A vision that is impossible to achieve amidst political upheavals and disruptions to constitutional order. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to deliberate on this issue and chart a course towards a resolution. In accordance with the principles of democracy, rule of law, and respect for human rights. The goal is to get the junta in Niger to give up power amicably. The task of restoring democratic governance in Niger is fraught with potential hurdles and complications. However, we cannot afford to be hamstrung by these challenges. Instead, we must confront them head on, drawing upon our shared experiences, wisdom, and the strength of our collective resolve. Our decisions will send a strong message about our commitment to democracy, our intolerance for unconstitutional changes of government, and our dedication to regional stability. The absence of the defense chiefs from Mali, Niger, Guinea-Bissau, Burkina Faso, and Guinea affirms their stance. Any escalation of conflict or outright war would have severe consequences in the region. Phone News. Right, joining us in the studio is a global affairs analyst, Chooks Mwoko. It's nice to have you join us. Right, good to see you again. Great. All right. You, morning. Good morning. Now, you've been following this development, mm -hmm. I, I, I know, and um, as it is, there seems to be a lot of confusion as to if ECOWAS after the ultimatum, which should end, I think, on Sunday or so, mm -hmm. if he ends there and there is a threat to the use of force, of course, when the military say there's going to be use of force, it's mm -hmm. only one way. Mm -hmm. We're going to see jets, you're going to see soldiers, you're going to see guns, mm -hmm. as the case may be. Now, going into that realm is what a lot of people have been confused about. Is it the right thing to do? Is it uh, not the right thing to do at this time? As the leader of ECOWAS, of course, if you watch the body language of President Tinubu when he was making that, that, uh, uh, that statement, that statement yeah. it tells you how emphatic and firm mm -hmm. he, his body language already spoke it. Mm -hmm. And it was clear. Now the chief of defense staff and military intelligence have been meeting in Abuja. I think the meeting will conclude that today or tomorrow, whatever the thing is. But I wonder what you are making from this whole 
You know that our president, if you follow his trajectory uh, way back um, when we were fighting for restoration of democracy, you can actually describe him as a Democrat. But at this point, I think he's hypocritical. Because when you're dealing... Hypocritical? Yeah, you see, for me, he's hypocritical. Because, I mean, he's, he's just completely hypocritical. Why, because, why because when you are an adult and you have a child and, you're treating, and your child took ill, or even you as a parent, you're ill, and you're dealing with some symptoms of your setback, it, it just doesn't make sense. This thing they are planning, yeah, I, I, don't, I think that the junta in, in Niger and all the, the Burkina Faso and other people who are in support of the junta in, 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 whatever, in, in Niger, they are also military people. They're probably going to wait to see what these chief um, chiefs and their military are going to do. Because they're also military. They, are, they probably will wait and see it and then run away and all that. But they're not going to listen to what these people are saying. Because you, 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 you're talking about democracy and restoration of democracy. But you sit here, you have a group. You have, you have a block in, the West Af in, in, in West Africa. You have the AU. Don't they have a, a peer review uh, mechanism to check what these Democrats who actually abuse the democracy, the way they govern their people and the way they stand their, their tenors. Why don't you deal with the symptom of this problem? These donors that you want to go and remove, are they not citizens of, of the same uh, country? Do they not currently have support of their citizens? Do, do they not have support of their citizens? Let the Europeans go to their own place and, and you know, stay in, the, in their countries and mind their business in the place and stop putting their, their noses where it does not belong. Whatever the ECOWAS team wants to do, me, like you said, you use the right word. There's, there's an air of confusion surrounding what is going on and what is going to happen. But you and I, my counsel is that we need to wait till the expiration of the mandate and, and the, and, and the um, you know, ultimatum. ultimatum that has been given. I am waiting to see what is going to happen. But I think that we need to be honest in whatever it is that we're doing. Democracy you know, has been here in Nigeria, for instance, for going to 30 years now. We thank God for it. Is that the way Africans have been ruled from uh, pre-independence? Or you just foisted this thing on these people and it's not working. And you have this constant change of government, military, uh, you know, um, removing elected uh, presidents. Elected presidents perverting their constitution, installing themselves, extending their tenors. I, I, it's just... A whole confusion. As an analyst, I don't understand it. Because you cannot say you have ECOWAS and you have your members perverting their own constitution. You do not say anything. And I'm aware that they have or they used to have this mechanism of checkmating themselves in different areas. Why hasn't that worked? I'm sitting down to watch. It worked one time when uh, the Nigerian government harassed the junta's in Gambia and they ran away when they flew our aircraft above their government house and all that. Maybe that's what they are going to do. Maybe it will work here in Niger. But me, one word that I have for what is going on is hypocrisy. All right. So you've spoken about the response of the leaders. You know, you've, you've given your opinion about, you know, um, the, the, the hypocrisy you talked about. But about the coup itself, what are your thoughts on, on the coup? My thought is that you have coup where you have, when you are insensitive towards the leadership or the governance that you provide in a country where there is corruption. We have had it before. 
when uh, military boys take over and they find a reason to say because of A, B, Z, that that's why we're doing what we're doing or that's why we have taken over. Now, most of the time, it, the excuses they give is not tenable because they turn out to become worse. Do you understand what I'm saying? But in the particular case that we're dealing with, the people have been going through difficult times. The people have not been cared for. Why the politicians are living large? When you have all the perversions and all the things that are going on. These ministry guys, they are citizens of, they are not aliens. They are not from the moon. They are not from another country. They are citizens of those countries and they see that things are not going on well, that things are not going right, that there is corruption, there is incompetence, there's wastages. That some people are living well, others are, are beggars in the street. The people are not cared for, there's no compassionate governance. This is what gives rise this is what consistently gives rise to this thing in 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 Africa. Not just in West Africa, in Africa. When the people don't understand this democracy, especially when it's wholesale democracy that you're practicing. When your democracy is not modified to suit the culture and the way of life of the people. Those are the issues we need to discuss. Because this thing you went to go and bring it somewhere. For instance, in our own country, democracy is about 30 years old here. You know how long we have lived here? And people like us have been advocating that we also implement, uh, what is it called, um, modifications here and there. So in Niger, you need to sympathize with the people. The, the government needs to um, demonstrate compassion. That was missing. That was missing. There's poverty in the place. The people are not cared for. And they, um, I can tell you for free that if they had modified the system of government to accommodate everybody, you won't have this situation that you have right now. Yeah, but the point there is, what, what, the, the message from the reports we are getting and the body language and the statements by ECOWAS is that in the 21st century, mm -hmm. we can't be encouraging more coups. Of course, every country has its domestic issues. Mm -hmm. There are issues of corruption in almost all countries of the world. Everybody's grappling with that. There are issues of poverty in so many countries of the world. People are grappling with that, incompetencies of government, you know. All of those things are there. If you check all the indexes, it seems all countries are going down. Very few countries are remaining up in the performance indexes around the world. But the issue of military, truncating democracy, mm. I, I believe it is a message that ECOWAS wants to send. Whether it... When it comes to justifying it, there is no way, whether there was corruption in the Niger Republic or even in all of those countries or not. For instance, the issue of slavery that, we, that has passed it in the last century, in the, modern, in the modern setting, no one can talk about slavery and this justification for it right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. The issue of colonialism, mm -hmm. when colonialism was there, nobody can talk about colonialism at this in the 21st century, and anybody going to find justification for that. It's mm. the same thing they are saying about military dictatorship. What do you say? I, I tell you that me, I don't know, maybe, maybe because I did not attend the kind of school that you attended. I went to school, though. <laughs> in this democracy thing, I don't have a problem with it, because if you say otherwise, you, you become enemy of the people. I studied government in, in secondary school, and I've been following governments. I know what is going on globally. The world that we live in today is in trouble, whether it's in Chile, whether it's in Gambia, whether it's even in the United States, whether it's in, 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 in Great Britain. There are hiccups. Look, 
Do you know what is going on in the United States with the, with the democracy? I think they are the, they are, they are the uh, custodians, as we are today, no longer Greece, of democracy. Go and see what has been going on there since 2004, when Al Gore and George Bush contested the election. Except you are not a student of history. Africans have the habit of going to the market to buy wholesale products, whether it's good for us or not. You talked about slavery. Who told you that slavery is no longer in existence? Mm. No, how do you come to the conclusion that we no longer have slavery? How do you also come to the conclusion that there's no longer colonization? We are being recolonized by the white man in a different way. Our brains have been harvested, and we speak like them, we act, and they make us think like, like them. Look, in 2020, there was an election where Donald Trump was elected. See, tomorrow, they said all kinds of things about that man. In fact, the word they used, and they're still using is that he was an illegitimate president. And all the things that they, they said. If you're not, if our brains have not been harvested, we will know that in, from that place, in that place, the, uh, in that country, that that democracy and power is shifting to Russia. Power is changing hands. Now, you are not able to see that physically, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this thing is beginning to fade. There's need for us to buy and reshape and recreate. When we lack creativity, we'll buy things and use it and it will destroy us. We need, to, even within our own sphere here, we need to sit down and look at how we can make changes to our community. You and I have been removed from the political equation in this country permanently. Me and my generation, if something is not done, because I don't have 100 million naira to buy a ticket, not even for a, a local government chairman. I don't have. So it means that we never participate in my life in the political process. We need to sit down. When you go to Niger to go and restore that man, you think he will not be removed again. I think that there should be a negotiation. There should be give and take. They should not use force. Because really, can you force a man? There are things you cannot force me to. I would rather die. At a personal level, you come and ask me to do certain things. That's the human being. That's the human nature that we all carry. You are threatening people that you want to come and remove them from power. In, in their own sphere, do you know what they have been going through? Did you talk to his, a, a, the democratically elected president to say this thing you are doing? Do you check your, yourselves? Peer review. Look, peer review. It's very important since you have a block, a Yekowas group. The democracy you people are talking about, I don't have anything against democracy. I'm just saying that the place where you borrowed it from. Go and see. Look, the Algor and w, George W. Bush election of 24, uh, 2004 is still something you need to go and study. If 2020 election that brought Trump to power is not enough lesson for you, I think that we should play with caution because you cannot, as a block, start what you can't finish. My suggestion is that they should approach this guy with patience. Negotiate with them because they are also citizens. Look, let me give you an example in our, in our country. Do you know that we are in a, democratically, uh, in, we're in a democracy in Nigeria? And we have a political um, asset that we are using right now that is called the geopolitical uh, zones. Mm -hmm. For political convenience, is it not working? Who created it? It was the military, it was Abacha. Now, it was not Abacha's idea, but they have the courage to bring it to, 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 to practical reality. Now, the democratic process and all that and all that. A lot of times they don't have that courage to make the desired changes. Now, I'm not encouraging military takeover. I'm just saying that we should deal with the disease that constantly plague African nations. We have been here before democracy. 
came to Nigeria. The north in Sokoto, they had a system of government. In the southeast, we had. In the south, south we had. In the, in the southwest, we had. Now we can modify. How come that me and you have been removed from the political process in Nigeria permanently? My, our generation. How am I going to get money to ever participate? So all those things should be considered by our leaders and make sure that everybody is carried along. Okay. All right. Let me put you on hold and let's go on a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us on TVC Breakfast. All right. You're watching TVC Breakfast. On this segment, we're looking at the issues in Niger Republic. Uh, they have a military junta there and it's been sending a lot of diplomatic and military signals here and there across the African continent and this West African sub-region, even around the world. And whatever the thing is, there are the issues of the reports of vested interests in Niger Republic, especially when it, when it comes to the natural resources like uranium and gold and so on. So there are various interests there and there are various reactions as well. So there are homegrown solutions. Some people are you know, recommending here and there, but others are saying, no, go in headlong, military and all of that. But we have an, a guest here who understands all of these, helping us to make sense of that. A global affairs analyst, uh, Chuk Smoko, has been with us, and he has been helping us make sense of some of these issues. Kemi, you are going to ask a question. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I'd also want to know what you feel about um, the latest sanctions that we hear has already taken effect in Niger Republic, talking about Nigeria, um, reportedly cutting off uh, power supply to Niger. Of course, the country has um, also been reported to make some other measures to, uh, you know, generate power within the country. But um, what do you think of this in line with the other sanctions that, um, you know, ECOWAS has also, you know, said it would slam on the country? Look, whatever, I think that whatever anybody needs to do, I don't even know the connection, whatever anybody needs to do, Russia is there. Power is changing hands. If you are not able to see physically, if you are not able to see spiritually, please see physically. Recently, the uh, Nigeria's vice president visited China with some heads of state from Russia, Russia, um, Africa to Russia. Mm. You know, they, you always find who you can never be totally bad. They have natural resources. I think it's their duty to find other partners and other friendly nations that they can, even if it's just one, even if it's just uh, Russia and China, one of other countries, or just only Russia. Look, whatever the ECOWAS want to do, whatever anybody wants to do, uh, European unions want to do, I think that the best thing to do at this time is negotiation. Because even if you go to war, at the end of the day, you still come to the table to talk. I think they should engage these guys, no matter how long it takes, to let them see what they are saying. Okay, what ECOWAS is saying is that they can no longer tolerate military junters and military takeovers of countries in our region and all that. What I me I'm saying, as inconsequential as I am, is that they should recognize that the best way to get Africa to, be de uh, to become democratic is to bring this democracy and modify it. I haven't been to Niger Republic before, but you know that even before this crisis, they basically... And in Nigeria, Nigerians are everywhere in this country. Even during our elections, we were just talking just now. They, they vote here, from what I have heard. Um, we have, they are our neighbors. They are close, you know, next door neighbors. We have to be very, very careful. Forcing something under somebody's truth that he's not prepared. He will throw it up. 
Democracy, those on top of us have thought is a good thing. Let it come, but modify it. If you want to cut off light, let them go and find light somewhere. Even with the light, they have been suffering. And all these other sanctions you want to place on them, please go ahead and place it. Maybe that will subjugate them. Maybe that will exact them to come on their knees and say, okay, you know what we want to. But in the meantime, let them be, call them to your meeting and have a discussion with them because we are too small and we are well connected. Because if you see the map of Nigeria and Burkina Faso and all, you see how connected that we, we, we are. We cannot do this to ourselves. One nation, um, you know, uh, removing a, a democratically elected president and all that, that can be managed. Even if they are 10, we can manage it. Let the Europeans go to their place and go and extract their, their resources and leave us to manage what we, what we have. Already we are suffering from the price of, of the setback of the price of civilization. We are ready. Let them leave us alone. They have colonized us. They have enslaved us. They have done all kinds of... They have taken our resources from Africa, from Congo, from Niger, and taken all these things. The things they use in making your phone, do you know where they get it from? They didn't leave us alone. When we are ready, like I, I, I said uh, during the week, even the fair crisis and all the economic crisis that we have in Nigeria is going to linger for a while. But the benefit of that, from, uh, of the lingering, is that fear will probably get to sell for like 2,000 naira, Right? But the beauty about it... 2,000 to... I am... T per yes. yes. That's your projection. That is that, your, that's that's my, projection. That's my projection. Uh -huh. in, ter in terms of the height of the general crisis that we're going to face. Now, the beauty of it is that as Africans, we should wake up and let our heads begin to work and be creative. If we need to start refining the fuel, if the, fuel, um, the refineries refuse to work. Have you ever been pushed to, work, to the world before? No, you haven't. You look very tush. You look like a jebota. <laughs> so you don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> we need we to be pushed to the world. Yes. We have all... So, to, wait. You, that's what you think. Because there's an assumption by people who rule that they have answer to the problem. There's even an, a presumption by citizens to think that one man is going to bring a solution to our problem. We are going to find the solution collectively. You know what they say? It's a tipping point. When this thing tips, when you attain a tipping point, like they have done in Niger, we will find a solution to our economic problem. We will refine this field. All these economic and market forces that you make, they will diminish. Because when you do not show leadership compassion, when you don't show compassion to people who are suffering, you are going to get what you have just have in Niger. I think that we should handle this with um, care. We should handle Niger Republic with care because it will happen in other countries and there's nothing you can do than threatening with uh, your economy. That covers my, my but, yeah, there, there are some reports that, uh, because the analysis that we're seeing here and there, and from some of the pictures, the visuals coming out from Niger, an average Nigerian, after this happened, we saw the chants down with uh, France, and there was the issue of support for Putin. There were the names of Putin being called, there were the names of Russia being called, and the flag of uh, Russia was, was raised, and everyone was happy. So the point there is, some are saying, what is the Russian connection here? But we have also seen the uh, Russian government condemning the coup. So the point there is, on one hand, we, have, we also got the report that uh, the U.S. vice president and some other Western leaders uh, had called the president of Nigeria to be decisive about this issue. So there are the uh, scare that there could be a proxy war and 
this Niger could be the opportunity of the West and the East fighting again. But, but, is that a likelihood? Yes, there's a likelihood. Because you see, election is holding next in the United States. Mm. If the Democrats are going to remain in power, there must be war somewhere that they are fighting either by proxy or physically by themselves. Because every time there's war, and America is involved in that war, by either by proxy or by any means, the, the, that subsisting government will always retain power. So they will sub generate support. Yes, the, the citizens support. of that country will vote back the the, the, the government that is in power. But don't you think things are even changing it's, in America? You said so earlier that it, things it, are changing. It, look, go back to Jimmy Carter and Iran having this stuff they were having in in how many years ago? 1970 something. It, it's a history, and the history is there for all of us. 80. And Jimmy Carter served only one term. And that, continue, con that problem continued until Reagan came. So, go and check the history. Whether all these things they are going on, this war, proxy war they want to fight, will diminish what you are talking about. That is number one. Number two, look, there's a power shift. There's a global power shift. The only thing that is still sustaining America is one thing. is the deep development. China is almost taking over. Um, Russia is there. And why are they shifting to Russia? I am not friends with Russia or to Putin because of what they are doing in Ukraine. I thought he, the man is just generally irritated and all that. But that does not diminish what I'm saying to you about power shift. And I just told you, your vice president went there. The African nations went, uh, some heads of government in Africa went, uh, went to the place. Why? Why didn't they go to the United States? Look. Well, but one would say there is the Africa... The Russia Africa Summit, there's the America Africa Summit, there's, there's the China EU Africa Summit, there's India Africa Summit, there's China Africa Summit. They've all been to all of those. Do you know why those, those blocks you are mentioning, why they came up? You remember how in this studio, I was always coming here to come and talk about what China was doing with heads of government of, of um, Africa. Mm. You've forgotten those summits that were held in whatever. Why did those things happen? Because of the, the pride of the American government under, under Obama when he came to power and all, all those bragging, they were bragging. And people, all these governments saw the, the loophole and they tapped into it. So power is shifting. If you, ha if you can't remember what I'm saying to you, you can, re you can see what is going on now. Kamala came here the other day, went to, where did he go to? He went to Ghana and all that. Uh, how many African countries? China has spread an in table and put money on the table for African governments. You know what they have done with us here? Do you know what they have done in Kenya? Do you know what they have done in Uganda? In, the, in Tanzania. Tangible support. And power is shifting. Because we have make, made new friends. So it, it, Niger has made friends with, with, um, with Russia. So, so it's Burkina Faso. Will it be better off? There is the global interest about the uranium. They will be better off. They will be, a lot of countries will be better off. In fact, a lot of countries are already better off with China and with Russia. So, I am telling you, because I, am, I know what I'm telling you, power has already changed hands. Global power has already changed hands. And it's better that would not cause regional war, because Burkina Faso and, and, and Guinea, or, or who, has said that if you do this thing, you're asking for war. Mm. We don't need any war. Any, we don't need war anymore. Let them go and call these people and have a chit chat with them. No matter how long it takes, because at the end of the day, 
you will still need to come to the dining table and let them use the asset that they have. Mm -hmm. What's the asset? The ECOWAS uh, review mechanism or the African it, it, review it, it, mechanism. Uh, it's actually it's the African better. Union that, that had the, the, uh, the, the peer review mechanism. Whatever they need to do, if they don't have any ECOWAS, let them create one okay. and use it to institutionalize this democracy. Okay, we have to leave it here now because of time. Just Woko, thank you so much for your insight thank into you. some of these thank issues. You. And you. Um, you have uh, made some points that will keep ringing and will resonate among a lot of people who are watching uh, what's going on in Niger. Thank you very Many. much. Thank you for having thank me. And uh, that was... That was a report uh, from uh, TVC uh, in the West African state of Nigeria uh, analyzing... Uh, the uh, threat uh, by uh, the newly inaugurated President Bola Tinubu uh, to lead a military force uh, into neighboring Niger uh, to reinstall uh, the pro-Western President uh, Mohamed Bazoum. If you want to read more on the situation in Niger, just go to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break we'll, and come back uh, with our concluding segment.
the Motown sound of the monitors uh, with the track entitled Bring Back the Love. And, of course, uh, August is uh, Black August. And, of course, uh, it commemorates the centuries-long struggle against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, racism, and imperialism. And uh, we're going to listen uh, right now to an interview uh, with C.L.R. James, the Pan-African historian and social scientist, uh, discussing uh, his work uh, related to the historical significance of the Haitian Revolution. Christopher Columbus landed first in the New World at the island of San Salvador, and after praising God, inquired urgently for gold. The natives, Red Indians, were peaceable and friendly, and directed him to Haiti, a large island, nearly as large as Ireland, rich, they said, in the yellow metal. He sailed to Haiti. One of his ships being wrecked, the Haitian Indians helped him so willingly that very little was lost, and of the articles which they brought on shore, not one was stolen. The Spaniards, the most advanced Europeans of their day, annexed the island, called it Hispaniola, and took the backward natives under their protection. They introduced Christianity, forced labor in mines, murder, rape, bloodhounds, strange diseases, and artificial famine by the destruction of cultivation to starve the rebellious. These and other requirements of the higher civilization reduced the native population from an estimated half a million, perhaps a million, to 60,000 in 15 years. And thus it is that Dr. C.L.R. James, a distinguished scholar, reads the first two paragraphs of his prologue, a remarkable book, a classic, The Black Jacobins, which deals with the Toussaint Louverture-led Black Slave Rebellion in San Domingo two years after the French Revolution. In these two paragraphs, Dr. James, your style of writing, of course, is a very salubrious one indeed, but the bite, the irony, and the truth, you might say, of white man in all these years, of Western civilization, so-called. In these two paragraphs, you've almost essentialized it. Yes, I think so, and I wrote it quite naturally. I didn't have to search, but I am a West Indian, and we in the West Indies are very much aware of the contrast between what the white man says and what he does, because we are Western civilized in our orientation, so we are aware of all the things he's saying, much more than people who speak a different language or live a different type of civilization. This very point you make, which you point out, Professor James is now visiting professor at the Northwestern University. Uh, the fact that you're West Indian, this has always been a fascinating historical point, isn't it? it we is. think among the leaders and the whole black liberation movement through the years have been West Indians. Yes, we have had a whole lot of them. We have had Marcus Garvey. We have had Aimé Césaire, the poet, with that magnificent poem on Africa in which he stated the question of negritude. We have had uh, René Marin, who won the Prix Goncourt with a book, Batuala, on Africa. We have had uh, Padmore. George Padmore, Marcus Garvey, as I said, and we have had, there's no doubt about it, that Malcolm X's mother was a West Indian, and that had something to do with it, and Stokely Carmichael was born and grew up there as a boy. I also took some part. I believe it is something that is worthwhile, and I know and feel myself as a West Indian as Padmore was. It's as though two 
two cultures are fused, in a sense. Yes, we are not admitted completely into the Western culture, but we have all the possibilities of developing it. So on being uh, kept back at home, we went abroad and made the best use of both the opportunities of education and the impulse towards freedom, which we felt in the island. That is the reason why the West Indians have done so well. And I would like to add this, that Fidel Castro and the Cubans are not of all black people, Fidel isn't black at all, but the attitude of the revolution and what they are doing is essentially a West Indian revolution, similar to what Toussaint Louverture did. Yes, so we come, in fact, you have a, an appendix to your book, uh, an epilogue. You wrote the book in 1938, how remarkably prescient and prophetic uh, Professor James' book is, because he dealt with the nature of Africa and the possible independence movements back then, but the, the epilogue is from... Toussaint Louverture to Castro. Now, Toussaint Louverture, and that's, it's imperative, of course, that white people know this, uh, more blacks do, or we know that younger blacks are aware of this. I had difficulty finding this book, by the way, in white bookstores I found at the Ellis Bookshop on South Cottage, which is significant in itself, I think. I think the book now is being sold and read everywhere. Yes. I think the movement on the whole... It is being read and studied in universities predominantly white in the United States. Yes. That is a fact. Although it's the black movement that has given it the great impetus. Perhaps we should dwell upon the nature of this book, and it's a terribly important one. It's the, sub the Black Jacobins, the subtitle, Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. Now, here you, you describe a scene. Uh, the uh, Spaniards came, the French, the British. They found a great deal of profit to be made in the West Indies, San Domingo, Nahiri. and It now, was the wealthiest colony in the world at the time, not only in the West Indies. And so, but it could only be done. You describe, of course, the slave trade and the nature of the slave ships and the yes. incredible brutishness. So the question is, how could a people, the black people in this case, the Africans, and this, well, I'll ask you about the mulattoes in a moment, the Creoles, how could they survive is the question. This is the key. The question is this. Number one, they were a people, obviously, who had basically a very fine physique. Otherwise, they would have been wiped away by the sheer objective circumstances of the middle passage and their lives. They had a fine physique, and secondly, which is a most important point, they obviously were a highly civilized people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to be integrated into the, sla into the sugar production in the way that they were and learn as rapidly as they did the language and all the uh, techniques of Western civilization. They were civilized people in Africa, and today people are more and more recognizing that even when they were slaves in Africa, they were slaves of a certain organized society. That is what must be remembered about the West Indian. And he was more fortunate than he was in the United States because the islands were small, immensely concentrated. The sugar plantation had many of them living together, so they were closely connected. And this backbone of civilization in Africa and African physical strength, and then having to learn the elements of Western civilization made them what they did and what they have become. Ah, so we come to several points that Dr. James raises, and again, the question of submerged history or suppressed history that there was a highly developed, I know Basil Davidson, among others, points Basil this out. Basil Davidson is doing a lot of that work, and that work is very important, and I'm very glad that Basil Davidson is doing it, because I have to say there is a tendency 
to critic criticism, sharp criticism of people who are whites because they are white. And Basil Davidson is a white man who would be an adornment to any black university. But in his books, whether it be The Lost Cities of Africa, others, he speaks, and indeed many anthropologists now are discovering it. There was a highly developed civilization before the slave ships came. Yes, not only that, the man who I know has carried that to the highest point is Professor George Roig. He used to be at Rochester, and he's now professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. And he's doing some work on that subject, which is the very finest and most developed that I know. I myself am writing something, and most of my work is based not only on previous knowledge, but on what he and I have worked out together. Before I ask you further about the book, we go into the book, we should point out to the audience that Professor James is a historic figure. I hope you don't mind my saying this. Not if you seen Professor James was an acquaintance of Nkrumah. Uh, he had met him when you discovered him, when he was going to the University of Pennsylvania. He was a friend of Dr. Du Bois. He uh, was a friend of George Padmore, a remarkable figure too little known well, to... A close myself. ally of George Padmore. I used to know Marcus Garvey, too. You, you, oh, no, you I knew, knew Marcus, Marcus Garvey. Garvey? Marcus Garvey came to Trinidad sometime about 1928. He had already been sent away from the United States. And I was a reporter. And I went and interviewed him and followed him around where he spoke. He was a tremendous man. You probably are one of the few living people... I would guess, who knew Marcus Garvey personally. Yes, I knew Marcus Garvey. I interviewed him somewhere about 1928. Perhaps this is worth dwelling on. The role of Marcus Garvey. Here's a man who's been ridiculed to a great extent, and yet he made people aware, did he not, this Western... I believe the intellectual origin of the black movement must rest with Dr. Du Bois a man with a range of scholarship, practical activity, and ambition for the development of humanity, which is not exceeded by anybody in the 20th century. But his chief concern was to appeal to and get in contact with intellectuals, historians, organizers, etc. When Du Bois was finished, Garvey began, so to speak, and Garvey made black emancipation something popular, which it had never been before. So both of them, although they may have had conflict, they filled yes. political roles. Du Bois made it, and intellectual uh, discussion posed the question. Garvey made it a popular question. When Garvey was finished, everybody knew there was a black question. Both white people knew and black people all over the world knew. And that is what Garvey did, despite the mistakes that he made. That is to his great credit. And Garvey's name was known throughout the black world. In Africa, too, they knew of Marcus Garvey. And also throughout the white world. Garvey had made everybody, black and white, understand that the black man was sleeping no longer. He was on his way. That here, is his great contribution. Here again, a West Indian. And so we return to this moment that, with, with which your book begins. Uh, here was a colony profitable to the colonists, to the absentee landlords, the powers, uh, people being used, abused, yet surviving. Now, something happened in France. Now, in 1789 was a French Revolution. Mm. Therefore, it had a certain impact. How did word come to San Domingo? For one reason... People used to go up and down, but the French whites discussed the doctrines of the French Revolution with the utmost freedom. And there were white people from France who asked them, aren't you worried a bit that you should discuss these things before these black people? But they paid no attention to the blacks. They looked upon them as some sort of animal. A white woman used to undress 
before the black slaves, as if they were a horse or a dog. They looked upon them as nothing. And they discussed these things very freely. And people from France asked them, but aren't you? Nervous talking, they didn't bother, but the blacks were listening. Ah, what is interesting about this, what makes Professor James' book so contemporary is the very point you just made. Often there is a woman working as a domestic in the home of a white mistress, you know, and she's talked about many, tell me this, friends of mine who worked as domestics, elderly women, who say that uh, they know everything about this person, and the person knows nothing about her because that, they talk in front of her as though she were furnished. That is a fact, that is a fact. That is a fact. You see, and a great deal of that is due to the fact that the black man is looked upon as a barbarous African literate, but he has had to learn the language. That is very important. He has had to learn the European language. So today in the Caribbean, he speaks English, French, or Spanish. And he's equally a master of all of those, those so languages. he's learned these languages, he's learned far more indeed than the white master knew, to survive. And so we come to many other aspects in your book, the nature of survival itself. Sometimes it's clowning, sometimes it's pretending not to know in order to survive. And behavior different, uh, black people among blacks, different than, say, in front of the white. That is quite true, but the thing that I emphasize in regard to the Caribbean islands and regard to the San Domingo Revolution and the Cuba Revolution is this. The islands are rather small, judging on a world scale. The population is immensely concentrated. The type of industry where there is some is sugar or scraps of modern industry which d develop a highly civilized population. And in, for example, Trinidad, the island I come from, Barbados and Jamaica, we have the extraordinary advantage of having newspapers, papers, television, radio, etc., from Britain, from the United States and from Canada, the opportunity of being in touch with the advanced centers of civilization is very so great. So then the people will au courant with all aspects the of life. The people are aware. They just have to pay two or three dollars a month and they get a radio and they hear everything that's going on. Now going back to this time, something was happening then at this moment in France, the revolution. Two years later, something broke out in San Domingo. And we soon we learn of a man named Toussaint Louverture. But before that, now, was there an attempt by the colonists to split the people? After all, there were mulattoes, there were Creoles, and there were the blacks. Yes, the San Domingo Revolution began, the Black Revolution, because of the fierce struggle that was carried on between the San Domingo whites and the mulattoes who owned property, and some of them were educated. And after seeing the ferocity of that violence, the blacks themselves entered. They entered as a result of the conflict between San Domingo whites and San Domingo mulattoes. In the same way as the masses of France intervened because of the conflict between the nobles, the aristocracy, and the bourgeoisie, this went on and then the masses came in. The same thing happened in San Domingo. So a parallel was working both parallel ways. Was working. Remarkable as a parallel. matter of fact, I'm very much struck by the tremendous parallels between the development in San Domingo and the developments in France. Much of my book pays careful attention to that, and I believe there are more parallels to be found later as we study both the French Revolution and the San Domingo Revolution. So there was a question of paradox involved, a question of contradiction involved. You point out the French Revolution was, in a sense, bourgeois, uh, taking over, knocking off the... No At the same time, slave trade yes. was part of their... Yes, the, the money that the bourgeoisie got that made them what they were, and as Jaurès says, gave them the feeling for liberty, that came from the slave trade. 
It's a very sharp contradiction. Now, the second paradox that I'm concerned with is that this sugar plantation was a very severe and demanding mode of labor, but it also concentrated the, the blacks and gave them some element of social civilization, some feeling of unity, and enabled them to learn fundamentally many aspects of Western civilization. So that this sugar plantation was at the same time the most degrading and at the same time a very civilizing effort on the part of the black people. Again, paradox. The degrading nature of the work, the exploitation, at the same time, communication, communication. because of the constant contact. A constant contact, and also the sugar plantation produced sugar and the food that they ate came from abroad, the sugar was sent abroad, and so forth, so that they had education, not only in what was going on around them and the close relation with their masters, but the sugar plantation was intimately connected with foreign developments and finance and so forth, and all that the slaves learned. So the window now was being opened. The window, awareness was occurring, and once that happens, people can no longer be the same. They, and the moment the French Revolution began, because what is important about the San Domingo Revolution, which has made it the most successful, the only successful slave revolt in history, is the fact that they were slaves. They had these elements of civilization in them, but they were able to use the doctrines and ideas of the French Revolution and apply them, these ideas, to their own situation. So they had not only a physical basis, contact with society, but they had a new ideology. That's what they were, liberty, equality, fraternity, all that meant to them, the republic, and so on. So again, perhaps the crowning paradox is the fact that it was the bourgeoisie that were factors in the French Revolution, and also profiting the slave trade, but because of what they did, the window was now opened to the black slaves as well as the colored slaves. And they learned in, it. In they learned. They, oh, they took it over and made it something for themselves. And so the time was right then for a certain figure or group of figures. Yes, so uh, on the basis of that objective development and the spread of ideas, there emerges this remarkable man. It's difficult to say that the revolution made him, but he made the revolution, but the interplay between them is such that it's difficult to distinguish. And here we come to a man who's been a slave for 45 years, yes. Toussaint Louverture. Yes. And he comes at this moment, about 1791 or so. Yes. However, more important is the fact that the Abbe Reynal had written a famous book on the situation in the East and the West Indies. And he had said in that book, in a magnificent gesture, that the time was coming when some revolutionary person would relieve the slaves of the burdens from which they were suffering. And what is most fantastic, that book came into the hands of Toussaint Louverture. And he read repeatedly this passage in which the Abbe Reynal, I'm sure he was just a revolutionary intellectual, he just said, someday somebody would arise. And Toussaint kept on saying, someday somebody should arise. And he kept on thinking that someday somebody should arise. And the moment the revolt started in San Domingo, he said, this is, I am the person now. That is a very strange business. Reading the now, something was happening in France. You mentioned that Diderot, there were writings against slavery. That is before the revolution, yeah. the encyclopedia, yes. There were writings, but very often, I think you point this out in the case of Robespierre, that it was the word rather than the deed that was yes, being attacked. Because to abolish slavery meant a revolution. A tremendous revolution, not only in San Domingo, but in France. And they had reached 1793, and the days of May 1793, and they had reached this spring of 94 before they abolished slavery. 
So now the word had come. The man had come, and his colleagues, now the word. Worthy, and for 12 years now, the battle raised, the revolution, with, with pressures back and forth. Were the colonists, wholly now we come to the question of awareness or lack of awareness, were the absentee landlords of the colonists themselves? Now the colonists began by joining the revolution because the ancient monarchy had what is called the exclusive and by that means they dominated the economy. So the colonists began by joining the revolution. But afterwards they saw that the revolution in France was assisting the black people and saying at any rate if you are fighting for freedom you should have it etc. Whereupon the colonists to a large majority offered the colony to the British. That they offered it to the British. They were, ready to, they were ready to get rid of king and all this loyalty. They told them if slavery was not mattered to them. Yeah. And so they offered it to the British and the British came to get it. But they were defeated by Toussaint Louverture and the Black Army. So we have here again, we come back to your very opening two paragraphs you read in the prologue. The question of the coin. The, yes, question, the question of gold. Of the property. The question the wealth, of property. The production. The control of it. So I think what's bone deeply... Uh, powerful about uh, Dr. James' book, The Black Jacobins, is it deals with the reality of today, too. Though you deal with a time a hundred and almost two hundred years ago, and you would say that there are, there's lip service very often offered, but until the reality face that may concern property itself, then a shift occurs in the case of the colonists. I was able to write this book because I was taking part in London and thereabouts with George Padmore, Jomo Kenyatta, and various others. I had been friendly. I got to know him, Kuma. And we were living this life. In other words, the French Revolution, the Revolution of San Domingo, was to us a forecast of what would take place in Africa. So this book is closely the result of the kind of activity we were carrying on, both with the Marxist movement, with the black movement, and with the Labour Party and various others in Europe. The book is the result of a collab collaboration of a lot of people. So it really is a fusion of past and present. It's a so you wrote about the past, writing about present and future. And if you read the book carefully as you will, you will see that all through I am concerned with the effect of what I am writing on Africa. Yes. yes. You even have, if we come to another aspect, and this connects with the revolution itself, Toussaint Louverture, voodooism, the very fact that this had to be done secret too, because how could black people be Christians or to make themselves equal to the white, the colonists? They stuck to their voodooism because it formed a secret means of communication. But when the revolution actually took place, Toussaint and his officers were very severe against voodooism. They thought it was a backward being. But undoubtedly, I have no doubt as time goes on, that voodooism, not only before 1791, but afterwards, was a secret means of communication between yes, the Haitians. Slaves in America, the spiritual had a double meaning. Yes. So the gathering they were very close to Africa, you see, because many of the slaves who made the revolution had made the Middle Passage. So they had their voodooism. Well, they now, had. a question, because your book raised these questions, which makes it so fascinating work, too. The role of the French working people, masses now, at the time, the French Revolution and after, what effect this was having on the revolt elsewhere? We naturally think of today, America and uh, Vietnam, in a sense. No, I think this much. First of all, the French Revolution was the bourgeois revolution in that it resulted in the displacement of the feudal elements by the bourgeoisie, and the bourgeoisie took over. But the fact remains 
that the bourgeoisie will not have been able to carry that revolution to its success unless the masses of the French people, the sans-culottes, had done it for them. The sans-culottes didn't win money, but they were so hostile to the regime that they carried the bourgeois revolution to its complete end. And also in San Domingo, the revolt there meant that the black soldiers were able to defend that wealthy colony against the British, Spaniards and the rest of them, so that they helped one another. And in, at the high peak of the revolution in France, that was the time when the French revolutionary forces declared freedom for blacks everywhere. So the two of them were working together. Now, were there attempts, I think you point this out in the books too, there was a great ambivalence on the part of mulattoes to many, many cases. Yes, the mulattoes were an intermediate class. This has nothing to do with their color or their blood or the mixture of blood. It is that they were not closely allied with the rich whites, but they were rich people and they were allied in a way with the blacks, they were partially British blacks. So in between there, they were a typical intermediate class and wobbled both sides. Now they would go with this one and the other. And the ultimate victory in San Domingo was won when the mulattoes joined completely with the blacks to finish up with the French invasion. Now we come to several people in, in Toussaint's life. You mentioned Abbe Renal and a remarkable name, man named Santonax. Santonax was a Jacobin. He was a right-wing Jacobin. But there was something about him. He came out to, Fra to San Domingo being sent by the government more than once. And although he made mistakes and things and so forth, he was a man completely devoted to the emancipation of the black people. And he taught them literacy. He taught them revolutionary songs. He taught them Latin and Greek stories and education, the doctrines of the revolution. And he told them, you have your guns. Keep them. If at any time anybody tells you to give up your guns, they mean to restore slavery. Santonax was a bit uncertain as to what was taking place in France, but in regard to San Domingo, to, um, 50 years after, black slaves still remembered him because he had devoted himself completely to black emancipation. But there was always this memory and this knowledge that there would be an attempt to restore slavery. He had that, and he warned them. Anybody tells you to give up your guns, that means the restoration of slavery. And so we come to uh, many documents you have, uh, writings of Tucson and others. Perhaps, uh, I remember you reading the first part, the prologue. I've underlined something here of your writings, Tucson's writings. Uh, the underlining, the question is... Uh, are the colonists aware now that the black people will never, will never return to that? Toussaint place? is writing to the French government and he's warning them that the colonists are plotting to restore slavery. And he's telling the French government, I'm somewhat uncertain as to what you intend to do. So he's telling them, well, I don't think you will. It is a very fine passage. Do they think that men who have been able to enjoy the blessing of liberty will calmly see it snatched away? They supported their chains only so long as they did not know any condition of life more happy than that of slavery. But today, when they have left it, if they had a thousand lives, they would sacrifice them all rather than then be forced into slavery again. 
and then he speaks here to the French government. But no, the same hand which has broken our chains will not enslave us anew. France will not revoke her principles. She will not withdraw from us the greatest of her benefits. He's telling the French government, you wouldn't do it, but I'm telling you not to do it. She will protect us against all our enemies. She will not permit her sublime morality to be perverted. Those principles which do her most honor to be destroyed, her most beautiful achievement to be degraded. But if to reestablish slavery in San Domingo, this was done, then I declare to you it would be to attempt the impossible. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. And then he ends up magnificently. This, citizens, directors, is the morale of the people of San Domingo. These are the principles that they transmit to you by me. Orphe was beautiful. And the eloquence. Oh, yes. And yet wasn't this the one flaw in Toussaint, his faith in France? I'll come to Toussaint Louverture's, possibly his one flaw. Dr. C.L.R. James, Professor James, our guest scholar, particularly on black African West Indian history, a reading talking about his book. It's a classic called The Black Jacobins, dealing with Toussaint Louverture Revolt, beginning in 1791 in San Domingo. And he was just reading one of the letters Toussaint wrote to France. In a moment, we return to the theme and to Professor James. We return to Professor James, his book, The Black Jacobins. He'd just been reading a letter that Toussaint Louverture wrote to the French government. And we continue. A flaw. I admit that it was a flaw, but to see it only as a flaw is a mistake because that enabled him to lay the foundation in San Domingo that Dessalines and these others were able to use. That he, he had a limit, but it was this limitation that enabled him to establish something which the others could do. I, I, I withdraw that word flaw because this again is part of the power of your book, the nature of paradox, the nature of limitation, the nature of human possibilities. I would like, this was Tucson. I would like to tell you something. For a hundred years and more, Toussaint was somewhat uh, ignored in the history of San Domingo. People looked upon Toussaint as having made mistakes, and Dessalines, the man who carried the revolution to success, which undoubtedly he did. My book was translated into French. It went to Haiti. And I have been told by many Haitians that today in Haiti there is a new conception of the role of Toussaint in the revolution due to the, the, what my book has said. So because even though, as you say, uh, he was tied France very much. Yes. This the nature of him. This enabled one of his colleagues, Dessalines, to go to, further. To and, go further, and, but and he enabled Toussaint to lay the foundation and to establish certain principles. The real mischief maker in that business was Bonaparte. Ah, so now we come to Bonaparte misusing. Miss and Miss Bonaparte, who sent this tremendous expedition, perhaps the greatest expedition that had ever left Europe to conquer the Haitians. The, the blacks in San Domingo, and they failed. You know, it's incredible. Again, the book and its 1969-70 counterparts. The greatest expedition to conquer an island, we think naturally of ourselves in Vietnam at the moment, but here it was, Leclerc, led this incredible... Something happened to him, this French general, in his letters, his agony, yes. something he thought was easy, was a cinch. Yes, no. And then something happened to him. To and him. in the end, he says, we in France have a false idea of the country in which we fight and the kind of men we fight against. That was run out of him at the end. He realized that the blacks of San Domingo 
were not people whom you could just drive into slavery. He says, we don't understand these people. I remember many passages of his letters, but I remember this passage in particular. It is not enough to have taken away Toussaint. There are 2,000 leaders in San Domingo to be taken away. And right there, even though Toussaint was betrayed, he returned to France, he was imprisoned and died in prison. He said so, yeah, that, uh, it, there were still others. Yes, he said, you have, in getting rid of me, you have taken away only the trunk of the tree, but its roots are deep, and slavery will never be restored in San Domingo. That must be remembered. Toussaint could take the chances that he did and tie himself to French civilization because he was absolutely certain that the slavery could never be restored. And so it was 12 years or so. Yes. The French had, lost thousands, of course, of blacks. They lost 60,000 men, and more than that, the historian of the British Army says that the British Army was destroyed in the Caribbean. Totally destroyed. He says that is why when the war began in 93, they made little attempt or could do little in regard to France, in regard to the army, in, re in regard to military invasion of France. The reason was because they were attempting to capture the West Indian territories of France and the black armies destroyed the British army completely. Fortescue, the historian of the British army, says that 1798 is the most disgraceful year in the history of the British army. Because those blacks in the San Domingo did what they did. You know, your book has never-ending possibilities because it occurs to me, the black Jacobins, and of course the phrase used with the French Revolutionary Party, the Jacobin Party, but also the role that the Toussaint Louverture Revolution played in the American Civil War. Now, not only that, I would prefer to say this. It is in regard to the independence of the Latin American countries because they saw America independent. Good, they accepted that. But then they saw these black slaves not only win the independence, but keep it. Whereupon a lot of them in Latin America began to say, well, if they could win the independence and keep it, it isn't only America and a big country like So we can. And Pétion was beaten from Latin America was welcomed in Haiti, he was given food, he was made uh, better, doctors attended him, and then they gave him men. This was a Latin American. Latin America, they gave him men, they gave him uh, arms, they gave him money, they gave him a printing press, and it is from there he went back to Latin America to win the independence of the five states. So they took a tremendous part in the development of Latin America. Of Latin America, and then, of course, here we come to the United States. Because uh, the, the, people, the people in the United States refused to recognize Haiti until after 1865. Because the southern slave owners were always looking upon that as somewhere where they could expand the territorial uh, development of cotton number one and number two. San Domingo and Haiti had given an example to the French, to the blacks in, in the United States, which they knew very well, and which the southern plantation owners were mightily afraid of. That was a tremendous role. You know, again, the contemporary aspects of the book, toward the latter part of it, the War of Independence, the last chapter, you speak of the pride of, in three years, and people ask, how could this happen in three years? This, any part of your own, your own writing there. I'm yes. About if in 1788 anyone had told the Comte de Lausanne, the minister, the Comte de Pénier, the governor, 
General Rochambeau, the soldier, Moreau de Saint-Méry, the historian, Barbé de Marbois, the bureaucrat, that the thousands of dumb brutes who were whipped to labor at dawn and whipped back at midnight, who submitted to their mutilations, burnings, and other savageries, some of whom would not even move unless they were whipped, if these fine gentlemen had been told that in three years the blacks would shake off their chains and face extermination rather than put them on again, they would have thought the speaker mad. While if today one were to suggest to any white colonial potentate that among those blacks whom they rule are men so infinitely their superior in ability, energy, range of vision, and tenacity of purpose that in a hundred years' time these whites would be remembered only because of their contact with the blacks, one would get some idea of what the counts, marquises, and other colonial magnates of the day thought of Jean-Francois, Toussaint, and Rigaud when the revolt first began. Thus again, we come to the question of awareness and the lack of awareness on the other side of what yes. is happening, of what is about to happen. Yes, the book again has this prophetic quality. It's 1938, first written. And, and many it. of these things are, are written yes, in 1938. I didn't write them in. I made one or two changes but, and introduced one or two new points. But essentially, 98% of the book is as it was. Now, I would like, if you don't mind, to read this. This is one of my favorite passages in the, in the book. Yes. And you must remember that this was written in 1938. He had sent millions of francs to America to wait for the day when he would be ready to invade Africa, put an end to the slave trade, and make millions of blacks free and French, as the French Revolution had made the blacks of San Domingo. The great revolution had propelled him out of his humble joys and obscure destiny, and the trumpets of its heroic period rang ever in his ears. In him, born a slave and the leader of slaves, the concrete realization of liberty, equality, and fraternity was the womb of ideas and the springs of power which overflowed their narrow environment and embraced the whole of the world. But for the revolution, this extraordinary man and his band of gifted associates would have lived their lives as slaves, serving the commonplace creatures who owned them, standing barefooted and in rags to watch inflated little governors and mediocre officials from Europe pass by as many a talented African stands in Africa today. I wrote that in 1938, and today I'm very proud of it because I knew what was taking place. They were standing there in rags and having to wave when these fellows passed. And they only needed a few years for them to be driving past in charge, whatever they did. And these fellows became nothing. It is amazing, your passage, that as well as your book, uh, Professor James, the fact that you describe this and toward the end of it you, you speak of a, a letter from a Rhodesian black yes. that speaks of this particular aspect of it. You're writing, of course, the style, uh, the power, but also the truth that in this one man then you saw the development of a people, too. Yes. And you spoke of uh, the West Indians earlier, earlier and, of course, the great poet, Amy Césaire, whom, whom you know. Yes, I know Césaire, and he's a man I admire very much. And in the course of this appendix, in which I deal with the history of the West Indies, from Toussaint Louverture to Fidel Castro, I refer to Césaire's great poem, 
Cahier d'un retour au pays natal, statement of a return to the country where I was born, and I've translated some of it, because it is in this poem that is first stated the poetic conception of negritude. He says, my negritude is not a stone, its deafness a sounding board for the noises of the day. My negritude is not a mere spot of dead water on the dead eye of the earth. My negritude is no tower, no cathedral. It cleaves into the red flesh of the teeming earth. It cleaves into the glowing flesh of the heavens. It penetrates the seamless bondage of my unbending patience. And then he makes a tremendous statement on behalf of African civilization. Hurrah for those who never invented anything, for those who never explored anything, for those who never mastered anything, but who possessed, give themselves up to the essence of each thing, ignorant of the coverings, but possessed by the pulse of things, indifferent to mastering, but taking the chances of the world. And then he launches an attack on white civilization in 1938, the same year I wrote this book. And today, with all these missiles about, he says, listen to the white world. It's horrible exhaustion from its immense labors. It's rebellious joints cracking under the pitiless stars. It's blue steel rigidities cutting through the mysteries of the flesh. Listen to their vain glorious conquests, trumpeting their defeats. Listen to the grandiose alibis of their pitiful floundering. But he says, I must not be hate. I must not have hate. Because for it is not true that the work of man is finished, that man has nothing more to do in the world but be a parasite in the world, that all we now need is to keep in step with the world. But the work of man is only just beginning, and it remains to man to conquer all the violence entrenched in the recesses of his passion. And no race possesses the monopoly of beauty, of intelligence, of force, and there is a place for all at the rendezvous of victory. It is a magnificent yes. poem. Oh, yes. This is the finest poem ever written on Africa. You know, as... as uh, He's a West Indian, too, I want to say. <laughs> mm. Professor C.L.R. James, as you just read these excerpts from the César poem, I couldn't help but think of the power, the humanity of it, and, of course, of your book and your scholarship. Uh, the book, by the way, for listeners who will be inquiring, it's vintage. It's a paperback vintage. It's, it's definitely available. It's a classic, and it's, uh, it should be read, it seems to me, by anyone who wants to know about the open window and what is going on in the world and what will continue. And perhaps just one as sort of a postscript, your own courses, the way you teach, man, all literature uses your base in speaking of liberation. And it's used in, in one of your courses, Origin of Western Civilization, uh, from the Bible of the Hebrews, Revolt of Colonial People, Exodus, Revolt of Women Against Second Class Citizenship, Esther. And you go on to speak of Greek, use Greek uh, classics. Yes. And you go on. I use the Greek classics because the basis of Western civilization is the work of the Hebrews and of the Greeks. Everybody understands that. So in studying the race and the radicalism of race, I take examples of the radicalism of the Hebrews and the radicalism of the Greeks. I am happy to do the story of Moses because he was the first that we know of who led a suppressed people to freedom. So if you're talking about freedom and the release of a suppressed people, I begin with Moses. That is what we are rooted in, particularly in the United States and in the Caribbean. We are rooted in Western civilization. So we cannot ignore African civilization. We do the best we can to be in contact with it. That series 
of stocks. I deal with Mamo, I deal with uh, Nkrumah, etc., the emergence of Africa. But I say we have to be aware of where we have come from. We cannot uh, deny the roots of Western civilization and the radicalism that we find in it, we absorb and take it to ourselves. So that I think we have a lot to learn because we both Western and African civilization, we of the black people in the Caribbean and in the United States, we touch civilization at two points. And in all my work, I try to be aware yes, of them. Indeed, as uh, also what Dr. Du Bois said, and soul of Dr. Black Dr. Du Bois, Dr. Du Bois, he's one of yeah. the greatest men of the 20th century. I have been very hostile to people who talk about Dr. Du Bois as one of the great black leaders. And even black people say, well, he was one of our best. I say, but you do that, by you doing, doing that, you denigrate him. He was one of the most distinguished citizens of the 20th century. Yes. Black, white, yellow, or anything. A remarkable man. Yes. So in Dr. James, we have the scholar, at the same time, not the academician, not the removed, detached, very much the advocate scholar. Yes, I'm the advocate, and wherever possible, I participate in the struggles of the people. I know, and my course is aimed at proving that without the conscious intervention, or even the unconscious intervention of the mass of the people, there can be no real progress towards liberation. The Welcome back. And uh, that was a classic interview uh, with uh, T.L.R. James uh, discussing uh, his work on the Haitian Revolution. And uh, this is uh, Black August, and we're going to be all throughout the month uh, addressing uh, the struggle against slavery, uh, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, If you'd like to have access to this program, go to our website, at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, you can also uh, go uh, to our, uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Also, if you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you have to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're here every week uh, with uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're going to close out our program uh, with the music of Tad Dameron and Miles Davis, live in Paris in 1949. This is Ayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. next election, we'd like to play an original by Tad Dameron, Good Bait. la plus moderne du jazz. Cet orchestre est composé de Tad Damon, un des pianistes de l'école moderne, Miles Davis à la trompette, James Moody, ancien saxophoniste ténor du fameux Crespie, notre ami Kenny Clark à la batterie et Stila à la basse. Thank you.
de Tad Dameron et Miles Davis que vous avez entendu dans des improvisations de style tout à fait moderne. Now, don't blame me. Le même orchestre va vous interpréter maintenant Don't blame me.
Ted Downer and Lady Bird. 